Okay, if you would, please turn to the Gospel of Luke. The Gospel of Luke. I'll be reading chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. And now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife, and children, and brothers, and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And that's my prayer, Father. That you would give to all of us here the miraculous work of the Spirit to have ears to hear the words of Jesus and to love them, to be comforted by them, to be changed by them, to repent because of them, to be moved again and again by them. And so to that end, help me represent this text accurately to say what you intended that day, Lord Jesus, for that crowd to hear and for what them they are to get. May that happen again today. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you saw that our text right before this was about the absolutely free invitation of eternal life in Jesus Christ. The invitation to the banquet table and that it is to be received one way. Open hands as a gift freely. Many people have misconstrued this grace of God to be something like this. Agree with stuff about Jesus and you're in. Heaven is yours no matter what. 
And no matter whether the grace of God in the Gospel has changed the person's life in any way or not. So in order to keep saving faith clear, or in the context coming out of the dinner party, for Jesus to keep what it means to receive the free invitation of the banquet of heaven, what it means to receive Jesus as your personal Savior, in order to keep that clear, Jesus now lays out what genuine faith looks like. Salvation in Christ is absolutely free. And it will cost you your life. You receive eternal life. You receive the forgiveness of sins. You are guaranteed of the future bodily, physical resurrection in order to enjoy God in Christ forever. Absolutely at no cost to you. It cost Christ everything to purchase that gift. And... Once you receive it, you have just committed everything you are and everything you have to Christ. You've been bought with a price, as Paul said. Therefore, glorify God in your body. And that's why now in our text, as we move through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus, because He's preaching the true Gospel, He has no problem saying, slow down. Don't be so rash to come up to the altar call. Sit down and contemplate who I really am and what I am really saying. This is not a club, the church. This is not easy believism. There is no superficiality for my disciples. So think and make sure you understand what I am all about. Count the cost. And here's the wonder of Christianity. That call of Jesus is true. And if it's true of you that your heart has been miraculously born again by the Spirit, even having counted the cost, you cannot help but come and follow Jesus. Are you there in Luke 14? Remember where we've been? Jesus was at a dinner party. And now in verse 25 of chapter 14 of Luke, Notice the switch in the context. He's left the dinner party to that day or another day. And Luke says, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. And He turned and He said to them. See, Jesus knew the problem of crowds. That many people just jump on the bandwagon of what's happening now And so, unlike different movements and schemes of building mega churches, Jesus was different. 
Large crowds didn't fool him. He knew there were always the crowd followers. So he gives here a reality check. Jesus had no desire to build a following in the sense of numbers. He often purposefully tried to dwindle them. To weed many out. Because he knows. When the reality of the Christian life really hits and the bullets fly, those people are going to fall by the wayside anyway. So don't fool them. Don't trick them. Now let me put a big parenthesis in here. Within American evangelicalism for the last hundred years, there has been a doctrine just floating around in the air that says being saved by Jesus and becoming a disciple of Jesus are two separate things. That say you could receive Jesus as your Savior, be guaranteed of heaven, and never ever become a disciple in this life, but you're going to heaven. That says Jesus can be your Savior even though you have never submitted to Him as your Lord. It's just not biblical. As you read the Scripture, the life of discipleship, what that is, is describing the essence of saving faith. Being lived out. And Jesus makes it clear that salvation is not some mere decision of a person on a particular day. But salvation is the power of God that has come in to change a dead heart and make it alive to Christ. And from that, it results in a new life. Now how Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, if anyone is in Christ... He or she is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Now in this life of being in Christ, there's no perfection. It's not what Jesus is talking about. It's so clear through His apostles. But from that seed of initial new birth, you're alive to Christ. From that seed grows spiritual growth. Movement in that person's life. Movement toward a repentant life that just hates the remaining sin. It is a life that is pursuing holiness. And so for those Persons who rest in, well, I was baptized as a baby or even as a 21-year-old in a Baptist church. I went to an altar call and asked Jesus to come into my life. I became a member of a church. Those people who rest in that, but they do not seek to grow in obedience and 
the hatred of their own sin and to don't seek to grow into feeding upon the Word of God, they may be those who will say one day, Lord, Lord. And on that judgment day, they will hear the awful words of Jesus saying to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Or, the way that the Apostle Paul put it, they profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So in our text, Jesus warns about reducing Christianity to this simplistic formula. Say a prayer. Okay, you're in. Everything else is in some separate category of your life. No. Jesus says, slow down. Contemplate. Think about what is at stake and what it means to follow me. Count the cost. So, before we look at the cost of what it is to be a Christian that Jesus lays out here, let's look at the reason why it is really important to count the cost of genuine Christianity. And it's simple because Jesus gives us the reasons right there in verses 28 to 32 of Luke 14. He says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost? Whether he has enough to complete it. Better make sure you got enough money to do the whole thing. Otherwise, when he had laid a foundation and he's not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man, what an idiot. He began to build, but he could not complete it. Or, what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 men to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, he's going to be wise here. He's going to send out a delegation and ask for terms of peace. So Jesus says, concerning the Christian life, sit down. Don't be rash. Don't be too quick. Calculate the cost. Think before you act. Look before you leap. The tower is the goal. Not the foundation. Salvation in the resurrection coming that day. The banquet table we saw last week is the goal. Count the cost. He says, if you just build a foundation and you didn't build the tower, you missed the whole thing. He says to the crowd, salvation's the goal. 
not because I'm real popular right now and you think I'm the in thing and you're following me. He says, slow down and count the cost. See, this careful thinking that Jesus demands is opposed to the impulsive decision made in a moment of intense emotion at a youth group conference in the mountains. It's different than being in a large stadium with the best Christian pop artist there and the music playing and celebrities telling you how great Jesus is and then a pumped up emotional message that gets people out of their seats to come down and say a prayer. It's amazing God does stuff in those situations and saves people. But the statistics are, of those who actually come up, nine out of ten, their life bears out that nothing happened. They don't end up in a local congregation. There's no sanctification in their life. They were not born again. Jesus is implying in this text that the crowds, they're interested enough to follow Him right now. And so instead of turning around and giving them a sweet invitation with music in the background, He says, slow down and count the cost of who I really am. And what the gospel really is. And so Jesus in our text, to the crowd and to us, spells out three costs in the passage. The first is verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters. Yes, and even his own life. He cannot be my disciple. Doesn't the Bible teach us to love our families? To love our wives? Doesn't the Bible say that no man ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes and he cherishes it? Is Jesus contradicting the rest of the Bible? Of course not. He, he puts it in these Stark terms for shock value. To make His point clear. To get us to stop and to think about the demand that He is making on all His sheep. He's saying that our allegiance, our love for Him must be so real it must be so deep that by comparison, the love we have for the most intimate relationships of this life pale. You 
You know, we've been going through the book of Luke for well over a year. and One thing that is just crystal clear about it. The historical Jesus. The biblical Jesus. The way He spoke was just so, at times, off-putting. Biting. Shocking. And I just want to comment why, because these are very shocking words here this morning. See, he would never, ever, ever need to have done that if it wasn't for the reality of the world. The reality of the depths of us human beings who have fallen into sin and darkness and deception, particularly in religion. See, if there were no heaven and hell, if there were no eternal consequences upon how we deal with the gospel of Jesus, then maybe only tender and soft and positive feel-good words would be appropriate for Him. But that world doesn't exist. Jesus never spoke in order to win approval of anybody. Remember, I know it's a long time ago now, but when Jesus started His public ministry in His hometown of Nazareth, He's, he's in the synagogue, and in Luke chapter 4, this is what verse 22 says, And all spoke well of Him, and they marveled at His gracious words that were coming from his mouth. Then by the time he was done with that sermon, those same people tried to kill him because of his mouth. They tried to throw him off a cliff. The condition of the world that made Jesus necessary, it was and it is so bad that Jesus constantly reached for language that would capture people. It's, it's so needed today. I, I don't, I, don't do, I'll do it. I got family in the Bible Belt. It is amazing how so many people in the Bible Belt who are raised in church think they're okay and they're going to heaven. And there's everything about their life that the Bible just points to and says, no, you're not. And you can't reach them unless you look for the most stunningly shocking words that will wake them up. Let me give you a couple examples of how Jesus spoke. They come to Him and say, Jesus, give us a sign. And He looks at Him and He says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign. That's how he spoke. He turns to his own disciples. I mean, they're on his team. And he says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you, put up with you? When he taught his apostles to pray, he says, if you then, being evil, what? 
Because it was true. If you guys, whom I'm saving, are in your nature evil, and you know how to good, 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 give good gifts to your children, how much more will God? Or when a disciple says, wow, I like what you're all about. I'm going to follow you, Jesus. But my parents are really old and they're almost to the grave. Let me, let me wait and bury them. He looks at them and he says, you let the spiritually dead bury the spiritually dead. You follow me now. That's how Jesus spoke. He looks at his fellow religionist of the day, the fundamentalist, and he says, you are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. When Peter thought he was helping Jesus, no, Jesus, no, we're not going to let it happen. You're not going to die. No, Jesus whirls around and looks at him in the face and he says, get behind me, Satan. Because Jesus knows the only solution for Peter or any of us, the only solution for our spiritual, eternal death is His substitutionary death on a cross. And any hindrance that would come against it, even through Peter's mouth, is demonic. See, there were no words that were too strong or too graphic for Jesus to make real, concrete truth points. Jesus spared no feelings in His ministry because of the dullness of our hearts. Because of the sinfulness of what we even do with our own religions. And so He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. The call to hate here is rhetorical. It is not a call to stop caring about your parents or your children or your wife or your husband. Jesus takes those most precious relationships where all of us feel the love and the attachment towards those persons the deepest in our life. He says, as deep as those go, your attachment and affection for me is to be much stronger than those strongest of all attachments in your life. That's his point. Following Jesus in the Christian life is always to be first. No competitors. Your spouse is not a competitor. Your children are not to compete for your affection with Christ. 
See, when Jesus spoke this that day, there's a few, got to be a few thousand people he's referring to. Many of them, in a short period of time, he's on the journey to Jerusalem and to the cross. Many of them, because of God's miraculous working in their heart after the resurrection of Jesus, they will be his disciple. And it will tear asunder families in that Jewish culture. Much like it is doing today with Muslim people who are turning to Christ. Many of them have to escape their fathers and uncles in order to save their life. He says, if you're going to weigh uh, eternal life, my offer of the eternal banquet and what it cost me with the pain of what it might bring in your families. You can't be my disciple. This is real concrete for many people over the last 2,000 years. Jesus is saying, you think you're going to follow me? My followers must love me so much that their love for their own families and children and spouses seems like hatred at times to the world. And my disciples, he says, choose me. Otherwise, don't pretend to even be following The second cost he lays out is verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Okay. Jesus is on the road to Jerusalem in order to die. He's been very clear in Luke up to this point. When he says this, he knows that he's not going to always be here physically to be followed physically like the crowd that day. He is referring beyond the cross to disciples who follow him. You remember after his resurrection, he's on the beach talking to Peter. He says, quit worrying about John, Peter. As for you, and Jesus is going to be a gone, ascended to the Father, sitting at the right hand of God. You, Peter... Follow me. When he says follow me, he means us in this room too. It's not this physical following. It's him who died and rose and is seated at the right hand of God. You remember how Jesus said it to his apostles a few chapters back in chapter 9 of Luke, verse 23. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily. And follow me. So Jesus knows when he says this about your cross, this torture chamber, this hangman's noose, this firing squad. He knows he's headed towards the cross. His entire life is designed for the brutal torture and suffering in death. Of the cross. He said it this way See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priest and to the scribes, and they will condemn him 
to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And Jesus knew that his own pain and rejection would come upon his disciples, saying, A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And so in our text, he says, Come, bear your gas chamber, your electric chair, and follow Jesus did not come to die in order to make this very short, brief, temporal life really easy. Or worldly prosperous. That is a wholly different religion than the gospel of Jesus. He died in order to remove every obstacle that would keep us sinners from fully enjoying God forever and ever and ever unendingly in the resurrection. And He calls us to follow Him in His suffering because of the Gospel as His disciples in this life, in order to show how valuable He is above all worldly and earthly treasures that all those people outside of Christ are seeking. See, if we follow Jesus only for what he gives us now in this life houses and homes and wives and husbands and perfect little children and no cancer and back pains and everything. If we serve Him for what He gives us only in this life, then it becomes very clear that we're worshiping the exact same things that everyone else who doesn't know Christ is worshiping. But we're just using Jesus as a means to get it and they use other means, but if our eyes have been opened to the reality that Jesus, that God the Holy Trinity is the treasure. And you'll follow that treasure anywhere in this brief mortal life. Then it points to the world that that person is looking to another treasure that we know nothing about. This is why Jesus says, whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The pain of the cross that we are to bear is temporary. This life is short. Jesus does not call his sheep to unending eternal suffering. That's what He came to save us from. Whoever would save His life will lose it. But whoever will lose His life in this world will save it unto eternal life. Remember Peter? Jesus, 
Look, we, I've left my business. We, we, we've left our families behind. And, okay, we, you know, but look, we, we, we've, we've left everything for you. What are we going to get? And Jesus responds, Everyone who has left houses, and brothers, and sisters, and fathers, or mothers, or children, or lands, for my name's sake in the Gospels, will receive a hundredfold and will inherit eternal life. In other words, there is no such thing as an ultimate sacrifice for Christ. Remember our own context there in, in chapter 14? Jesus says in verse 14, you will be repaid the resurrection of the just. That's the motivation of the Christian life. The treasure Christ is and offers for eternity. And he says, come, follow me. And that's the connection in verse 27 to verse 26. See, this is why the divisions that may happen in families, sons, fathers, mothers, husband, wife, parents, children, that Christ comes in and it may cause divisions, but those pains and those devastating realities are not absolute. Because eternal life is coming. Following Jesus is of supreme importance. So much so that for many, and in church history has borne it out, it will call for particular behaviors in people that will cause those outside of Christ, even within our families, to think that's unloving. Like some guy in 1843 decides, I have to go to Africa. There's no airplanes. I'm going to get on a ship. And he's going to go to unreached peoples. Never to return home to England. Seems like hate to his parents. Brothers or sisters. What's the matter? You don't love us? Might cause that. You might grow up like I did and age 19 realize I wasn't a Christian. That that baptism as a baby, as a Roman Catholic, that wasn't real. From, I know I wasn't a Christian. I just became a Christian. And I, I look at the Bible and it says I should be baptized now. I, I love you, Christ. I'm following you. And it could look like rejection to parents. Well, that's nothing compared to the Islamic culture. Christ is real. Parents, brothers, sisters, aunts, uncles, families, culture hears them say, you guys are all wrong. And he or she is saying that. You're, you're in a false religion. Christ is the only way. It causes that our daily cross is dying to worldly desires and being willing, if it comes, to bear reproach 
for Jesus' name's sake. Bearing your cross is a way of saying, follow Jesus. Not only in eternity, it will be easy, there will be no more sin, but follow Him now in this sinful, mortal life where the world is filled with evil. This is how Paul put it in Philippians 3. That I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Jesus in His death. That by any means possible, I may attain to the resurrection of the dead on that day. And so what we see in our text so far then is that Jesus says, count the cost of bearing your cross that may cause others to think your love for me makes you hateful towards them. And then the third cost, He says, is that your life is crucified to your money, to your possessions. It's there in verse 33. After he then gives the two examples of counting the cost, he says, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Does not renounce, literally in the Greek, it's your, all your possessions. Renouncing all doesn't necessarily mean you sell everything that you own here. And that would become a problem if everyone did it, wouldn't it? How are you going to eat tomorrow? Got to depend on someone else who didn't. Aren't they supposed to? Okay. But, or we see Zacchaeus who was very rich, I sold half and gave. And Jesus was fine with that. Even though He told the other guy, sell all. Okay. So, the point that Jesus is making here, when you're my disciple, when I have reached out and changed your heart in new birth, brought you to Myself, everything you have is Mine. It's all at My disposal. All your money, or all the things that money can buy you. See, our money, or what it represents, what it gets us, all of those things are a physical mirror to our heart toward God. Where your money is, Jesus says, there is where your heart is also. I think people have in their minds sometimes, no, 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 I give my life, I, I serve Christ as a pastor. Or I play music, or I'm an evangelist, or I street witness, or I serve in the nursery, or I serve Christ, I give that way, but God can't have my money it doesn't work. It just doesn't work. There's a reason that before God created anything, He foreordained an extremely poverty-stricken widow 
to put in her last couple pennies. So that God the Son could make the comment she gave much more than all these religious hypocrites who gave a lot more money, but her percentage and what it represented about her heart was much more. That's why Jesus makes it clear. We'll see this in a few months in Luke 16. No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. This is why it's such a bad sign for those who don't live by the biblical principle of 10% off the top. The first fruits laid out in the Scripture of God, you own everything. Here's my first fruits. Before housing and food and clothing and education and entertainment. That's what first fruits are. Because our attachment to our hard-earned money and to the things that it could buy is one of the most destructive things to true discipleship. One main test for discipleship is what we are doing with our money, our goods, regardless of how much we make. $14,000 a year or $800,000 a year. If we're not regularly giving, setting aside to God first, then we are not living as Christ's disciples. See, if I just read this verse woodenly from the Greek, Jesus says, anyone who does not say, and this is really the word, farewell to all his possessions, that kind of an attitude, he says he cannot be my disciple. And then Jesus sums up this whole sermon to the crowd with verses 34 and 35. Salt! is good. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So here Jesus sums up the three costs that He laid out, and he does it with this salt image. See, if, you're not, if you're not pursuing love for me that, 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 that causes your love, your real, genuine, true love for your wives and family to seem almost like hate because of how much you love me, if you're not pursuing that, if you're not pursuing willingly to suffer in this life and take up your cross, if you're not holding loosely to your possessions and your money, it my use. He says, then you're like salt that has gone bad. It's useless. I'm going to turn for a moment to two commentators because then I said, what do you mean by thrown out? This is what bothered me. What do you mean? And I'm still not positive, so that's what I'm going to show you why I'm not positive. 
pronoun. What is he talking about? Totally false Christians or can that be true of genuine Christians? One major commentator on the Gospel of Luke, Daryl Bach, writes, So too, the saltless disciple is no longer used by God. This remark could allude to final judgment, like the odd man out in certain parables, or it could refer to the judgment of physical death that befalls some in the community, as Paul laid out in 1 Corinthians. The ambiguity may well be intentional. Failure to pursue discipleship can indicate that faith is not really present, even though it was thought to be, or it could indicate that faith is present, the person is real, but they're in spiritual rebellion. In either case, the situation displeases God. End quote. Now, another commentator, Kent Hughes, puts his positive poetic twist on it, saying it this way. But the disciple who is dynamically committed to Jesus in respect to family, the cross, and money is a powerful agent of the kingdom. His life is delivered from insipid blandness. His presence is always felt. He seasons the life of family and friends and church and society. His life brims with vitality. Saline saints bring zest and gusto to life. Like salt, they bring out the best of the flavor of living. End quote. This is about Christianity, discipleship. And that word disciple, it's from the Greek word mathetes. It means a learner, a pupil, a follower who would sit at the feet of a Plato or Aristotle or in the Jewish community, at the feet of a rabbi and follow them around and learn. Jesus transformed this word into the life of all Christians who by the Holy Spirit and the Scripture, the written word, in the context of the community of the local church, they would sit at His feet and grow and obey. So, what is Jesus saying to us in this text today? He's saying, if He is first in your life, then you will obviously be spending consistent time alone with Him, listening to Him in Scripture. And you won't let anything else come in the way. All other crucial relationships in our life where God has given us responsibility to parents and children and spouses and brothers and sisters. You still won't let them get in the way of being discipled by Jesus. You won't let suffering 
cause you to not persevere in a heart of faith in the gospel and God's promises. Jesus is saying you won't let the magnetic pull of money and goods Things cause you to not put the Lord first in how you deal with your money and dispense your money. But you will be a disciple. You will wake up working out your salvation with fear and trembling because you know it's God who is at work in you both to will and to work for His good pleasures. I'm working today. I'm going to protect my heart. God, you're first. He's saying you will believe the gospel of justification by faith alone through Christ alone. And in that gospel you'll rest fighting and hating your sin in the life of discipleship or in the life of sanctification. You will be living a life of faith and repentance. So don't let family friends or pain or suffering of your cross or the clutching of your money choke out the word of God in your life. Salvation is absolutely free. But once you receive it, it costs you everything gladly. Every day, every believer is called, wake up, consider the cost. Again and again. Consider the cost and the worldly dangers and put Jesus first in everything. Or he says, you can't be my disciple. And that's why Jesus ends with these words. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And Lord Jesus, we know that most glorious, wonderful truth that all of us, as Paul said in 1 Corinthians 1, could have heard the gospel, could have heard that you were crucified on our behalf, and we would have only said stupid foolishness or a stumbling block. But to those who are called, you have become the power of God and the wisdom of God, and you are seen truly by us as the treasure in the field, and the treasure above all treasures. And thus, your words, your shocking words, your stunning words, your clear words are precious to those of us who are being saved. And my prayer is that will be every person in this room. Open the eyes of those who have not been opened. And work in us. You're tired, flailing sheep by your sustaining, sanctifying, constant, loving,
presence. For we know you purchased it all. Amen.